You're listening to the first episode of Season 2 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and the cathartic powers of words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my young adult life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased follow-up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 1. Bigger Frame. I remember how exhausting, confusing, and lost it feels to realize that the life you were prepared for by parents and church and to a lesser degree school simply isn't the life you now need to lead. Oh, we are to bow to him as our Lord of our lives. But as the head, it would speak, I believe, as, a, as that we are to bow to him as our head and also to the authority of our brethren. We need to be humble and just accept what they say. Oh, it might be someone that, that steps on us. God's allowed it, and we take it from him. He's our head. I'd basically been given all the answers to life's questions at birth in a box, and now I found that my questions increasingly didn't match the answers they had prepared for me, and that this was judged to be very much my fault. It was like I was a living bit of evidence that their system didn't seem to work out for everyone always, despite what they taught us. I was raised to avoid all worldly entertainment, establish myself as a decent, upstanding guy in my church, not be single, not be depressed, not be bored, not be lonely, not be unemployed, and not express myself artistically, especially if it was something negative or about problems. Well, none of that was working. Way before Y2K finally hit, it was like my upbringing couldn't handle what the years were this century. We'd let televisions and movies and radios into our lives and homes, and that was it for keeping the world out and being gentle, quiet Christian aliens walking among normal human beings ignorant of the specifics of their depravity, pastimes, and lifestyles. And again, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. You know, before you're saved, why, you have no desire to be in the company of those that love the Savior. I needed to be saved from something, and it wasn't the world around me this time. It was like I still had the same dusty 20-year-old operating system and the computer that was me kept crashing when put in real-world situations, and there weren't going to be any updates, and there was no point contacting help desk or support, as they'd only tell us they were always there to help without actually, you know, helping. When I talk to people today, many of whom are thinking for the first time of leaving the Plymouth Brethren movement much later in life than I did, often the first time a divorcee is forbidden to remarry or One of their kids is molested or else is punished by the church for being gay and doing same-sex dating. It brings it all back. You just know that suddenly up might turn out to be down, really, and left and right might not be quite where you were told they were. That there is actually far more to human relationships than inside or outside, on which side are you? Lots of outside people and outside things you've been raised to think of as problematic or bad or toxic can well turn out to be absolute lifesavers. And some of the people you most trusted and leaned on, the inside people that you looked up to, may well end up being major life obstacles. There's a whole Facebook page I saw recently, 
filled with a torrent of recently disenfranchised ex-evangelicals, many atheists trumpeting to the digital sky above about the glories of their deconstruction, deconstruction. and how they once thought they had the one true belief system and were clearly very stupid, because now they do. Back in the day, I didn't know other people who were doing anything like what I was doing much. Most wanted to leave so they could be free, and were willing to pay the price of declaring the group right and themselves wrong about most things for the rest of their lives so long as they got to drink beer. They didn't mind saying that drinking beer was in theory wrong so long as they got to drink it. I wanted to stay, and be free, and point out a few things in the group that seemed wrong to me. In any case, I needed to change a lot, by myself, and against the advice of people who were at least pretending to make the Plymouth Brethren Church lifestyle work well for them, despite it pretty much melting down globally. The group I've been raised in didn't work for me at all, and my attempts to deal with other local evangelicals had gone unprecedentedly cartoonishly wrong. Regular worldly folks who met me sure thought I needed to grow and change too, but had no idea either. Mostly they just wanted me to do what they did. It was repeatedly suggested that getting good and high a few times would be all it would take. I knew it would take something harder than that, and something that would happen gradually, over years, if at all, so in all of the years I played in bands, and recorded in recording studios, all of the pot I smoked was strictly secondhand, just whatever was in the air of the room at the time. Even so, at band practice in a small basement in which a great deal of pot was being smoked by people other than me, I felt the secondhand effects enough that when it came time to play a cover of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, and I was supposed to be just playing bass, I reached for Troy's guitar, convinced that for that moment, I would be able to play more or less exactly like David Gilmour of Pink Floyd. All of the people smoking the pot for real decided that, for that moment at least, that I totally did. The lunatic, who was not on the grass. Long before I ever played in a band, though, I didn't know much, but I knew that nothing much about my week worked for me. The only things that seemed endlessly interesting and rewarding were stories, music, and real conversations with people about those negative things most people didn't want to think about. I didn't have a band or no musicians. I didn't know people who both knew about religion, but were also willing to have a frank discussion about it that went beyond, I, I believe, believe all of it, it don't, don't you? Or, I, I believe none, none of it, do you? So mostly I just read books and wrote things and messed around with whatever home recording gear I could buy secondhand, rent, or borrow. On a deep level, I needed a change in order to live, to have the flexibility to deal at all to leave the rural little brethren bubble in which I was stunted and suffocating, and not self-destruct in the big bad world as everyone in my church predicted I would if I dared stray from the flock. I didn't know who I'd become, or if I'd recognize or even like my new self. One day, I was painting a painting, and I realized that it wasn't like I was a canvas that needed to be entirely painted over. It was like I was a large canvas put in a tiny frame, with most of me tucked away out of sight, and a tiny painting, likely of a flower or a sunset, painted on the bit of canvas that showed. What I needed, I imagined, was to be truly stretched to my full God-created breadth 
in a frame sized to fit me that would leave me a large canvas with a painting of a single flower or sunset way down in one corner and an expanse of blank canvas to paint many more things on. More flowers, sunsets, a lake, the moon, wolves, zombies. It was refreshing to know I did have to grow and change, but also know that on some level I would still be me, just more of me, and kinds of me that I hadn't known previously, so I wrote lyrics to that effect. How uncomfortable, and between, and becoming, and done being various things I deeply felt. There is the image of me feeling like a bolt of lightning trapped in a mason jar, but soon to be let out, hopefully without breaking the jar itself. Because the jar was part of me too. When I was at university, I didn't really have any way to properly record music apart from a portable tape recorder. For me, my basic home recording would require a cassette 4-track recorder. While I worked at Radio Shack during Christmas in my last year of university, I spent some of my money on things like a guitar tuner and a drum machine. Once I got briefly hired to work at the Christian Homeschool School, I picked up a used electric bass and a Yamaha MT120 cassette 4-track recorder. For the first time, I could work with four entirely separate tracks of instrument parts one at a time. So I could put down a single mono track of my very early 90s sounding drum machine. Then I could set up a mic and record myself singing and playing acoustic guitar into it. One, two, one, two, three, four. Colors on the screen. I could do it over and over again until I thought I'd gotten a good take. add bass guitar. I could either use it, for example, for an electric guitar. I try to forget it any way I can. Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking in the free world. 
or I could do something like ping pong the bass and drums together with reduced sound quality by playing them and simultaneously recording them onto the remaining track freeing up the two tracks they'd been on before. Of course, drums and bass would be on the same track, and if I turned the volume of that track up or down or messed with the EQ or put a chorus effect on anything, it all affected drums and bass together. Now they were one thing. Then I could add two more parts. I'd freed up two tracks. We'd be better off dead, don't feel like safe, but I am to them. I try to forget it any way I can. Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking in the free world. More if I was willing to really reduce the sound quality and lose the ability to do things to the various parts separately. One of my favorite tricks given to me by this new machine was the ability to put things backwards. You could even play a backward guitar solo by flipping the tape over and recording to the tape playing backwards. Flip it back forwards with only that guitar solo being backwards. Ah! 
also, you could mess with the speed and pitch a little. Don't feel like safe, but I am to them. I try to forget it any way I can. Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking in the free world. Or a lot. Suddenly I could try and see if Queen's Another One Bites the Dust really said it's fun to smoke marijuana, like everyone had told me. And I could also make my own Smurf music, like the music my cousins had had on an LP record which I'd made a tape of back in the day, but which my father had smashed because there was a song called Smurfing Beer. And in the pub still give a cheer If they're serving Smurfing Beer Beer, beer, Smurfing Beer You don't get drunk and it isn't dear <laughs> and oh, when the Smurfs. Which he felt was blasphemous, as it was the hymn, Oh, When the Saints Go Marching In, only with the word Smurf. Smurf, that my smurf, to smurf, and smurf, my 
This was my first real chance to learn how to sing harmony along with myself, to play lead guitar along with my rhythm guitar, to play bass guitar, to all of it. Armed with this recording equipment and some random gear, I posted an ad on all the telephone poles and in all of the music stores around looking for musicians to help me work on songs I'd written and wanted to record. My ad was clear. I was looking for musicians to help me work on songs I had written and wanted to record. My ad was soon answered by people all over Ottawa and surrounding area. They all wanted an ace guitarist or rocking, yarling vocalist to sing with them and generally help them work on songs they'd written and wanted to perform live. None of them were at all interested in a frontman with no charisma or a guitarist without any chops and certainly not someone with a bunch of songs of his own. They all had a bunch of songs of their own. Whiny, shiny bitch Whiny, shiny bitch She's so tiny, she's so whiny Whiny little witch Don't you have a car? Don't you have a house? Don't you have a man to keep you warm inside your house? You're a whiny, shiny bitch Whiny, shiny bitch You're so whiny, you're so tiny in your little niche Whiny little bitch, you're witchy, 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 witchy None of them were particularly interested in making an album either, which is all I mainly wanted to do. One evening, still living at my folks, I got a call from a voice that sounded a bit like Tom Waits, and a bit like Leonard Cohen, and a lot like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. What sounded like an old guy smoking cigarettes and living in the woods. His name was Bill, and he was only 23 like me, and like me, lived with his parents. I wanted to record amazingly interesting albums like Pink Floyd's The Wall and Frank Zappa and Alice Cooper's more psychedelic stuff. Bill loved those albums, but mainly wanted to be a rock star in a rock band with groupies. I didn't get drunk and pick up groupies. Neither did Bill, but he wanted to. I didn't smoke pot. Bill didn't tune. I knew Bill for about a decade. We ended up having many friends in common over the years and we were in various bands together, worked on various songs together, and were roommates for a time. Well, like a marriage, that's often too long and too much working together for two people to come out the other end still wanting to hang out together anymore at all. Bill and I were no different. But from the beginning, Bill had this idea. He knew that one of the first things Don Henley and Glenn Fry did upon meeting, besides forming a new band they called The Eagles and recording an album called The Eagles, was to then write two songs together for subsequent albums. They were Tequila Sunrise It's another tequila sunrise Staring slowly across the sky Said goodbye And Desperado. Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences so long now. You're a hard one. I know that you got your reasons. 
these things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow. And they made the Eagles household names from that second album onward. Bill thought that as I wrote songs, and he wrote songs, and we seldom agreed on anything, just like the songwriters in our favorite bands didn't, if we wrote a song together, it was bound to be twice as good as any of the ones we wrote by ourselves. Sweet and sour, so to speak. Hot and spicy. It had worked for John and Paul, Pete and Roger, Dave and Roger. Bill was always going on about it. He thought it might be our ticket to stardom, because nothing less than stardom would do for Bill. But I kept writing the lyrics, and then I'd go right ahead and write the tune as well. This bugged Bill. Well, about five years into knowing him, I gave Bill the lyrics to the latest song I'd only written lyrics for, but hadn't written any music for. It was the lyrics to Bigger Frame. Bill did something on guitar that was quite unlike anything I'd normally do, and sang it in a somewhat Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen way. And once he taught it to me, it sounded quite different when I did it. For one thing, I'd never written a bridge before, was uncomfortable knowing how to find the correct pitch to sing once I had changed keys mid-line, and so just did the bridge in the same key as the rest at first. Bill was appalled. Bill and I, in a band, weren't really like John and Paul, or Pete and Roger, or even Dave and Roger. We were more like two Johns, two Petes, or two Rogers. It didn't work the same. Instead of a coming together of opposites, it was more like a failure to come together of similarities. But I liked the song we'd made. Before I ever set, not stepped, foot in a recording studio, I'd done my best at figuring everything out myself at home on home gear with my $60 microphone. The reality was that the feel of what I did at home often more than made up for not having the proper gear and expertise I would later pay for by the hour in the studio. Once Studio B went out of business and I lost my job and stopped recording there, I was left with cassette four-track home recordings that felt right, but were amateurishly done, and studio work that didn't feel much like anything yet, but was much more professionally done, including the contributions of session players, who often didn't really know or like the songs they spent an hour or two contributing to one time, and then forgot about forever. Besides this, I didn't have an ADAT machine, so I couldn't even play the tapes I had recorded in the studio. And then, as I discussed, something new started. Home recording, but on a computer, starting out with those tracks that had been professionally recorded in the studio. I could even put stuff recorded on the cassette four tracks into the computer and edit it all to sound better, adding new parts to it and using effects that were in the computer instead of guitar effect pedals. Of course, to begin with, computers weren't doing high-quality recordings, nor fast or smart enough to handle the many tracks they soon would. So there's a whole phase of my recording songs into sluggish computers that randomly lag the parts played ahead and behind what the other instruments were doing just subtly enough to be hard to catch unless you were listening, but clear enough for Chris Medcalf to complain, What fucking computers put me off beat? In fact, I met Chris and Mish, who was to be my brother-in-law, because I tried recording their three-piece band into my computer with indifferent success.
quickly found that recording drums is the hard part. They are too loud to hear anything else, and they benefit from a largish, sound-treated room and many more mics than we had placed carefully in that room. When we put all of our mics together, including embarrassingly cheap ones, we barely had enough of them, let alone of good quality, to record drums. The reality is that I had always had to play to a click track after a count-in to try to keep the different parts of my songs on beat and working in unison. I'd put on headphones and do each part individually, everything timed to that annoying clicking sound. Most bands didn't work like that and couldn't. Most bands played together, the tempo being slightly negotiable and changeable, a democratic beat by consensus. So long as they all got recorded, playing together, without picking up over much in each other's mics and being able to hear themselves and each other, and they didn't make any mistakes in a take that felt right, that would work. But if a singer or guitarist suddenly played a wrong note and you needed to try to replay that part or correct it after, well, that mistake had probably picked up in everyone's mic and couldn't be removed without everyone playing the whole song over again until it was error-free. But a lot of people in bands couldn't even play to a click track. It definitely took some of the feel out of the performance. And if you were used to playing in a band, but the drums were a sample or a machine or recorded on tape already and you came in to record your guitar part, if you sped up or slowed down or did anything interesting rhythmically that was new, the drums had already been recorded and did not adjust to fit what you were doing, so it was just tough. When you record each part separately, each one is played without hearing what the parts recorded next are going to do. I quickly found that everyone wanted to be recorded last, so they knew that their part went well with the other ones, but someone always had to go first. I found that many people in bands could not stay on beat to a click track and actually needed the other instruments to be playing in real time adjusting to their own temporal anomalies. But this song? It was never recorded properly back then. I can't find a recording of Bill doing it either. I'm not sure how much I even tried recording it back then. It was just something I played live. But then, long after Bill stopped talking to me, telling his wife that it was because I'd called her a cult, which isn't even close to what I emailed him in the middle of an email fight we were having, I started filling in holes in the Peter Grows Up album and needed a recording. I actually just said cult there because I rightly suspected one could use a censorship beep to make it sound like cult. 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 Because the other word is one that I don't really say. I say a lot of words, but that's not one that I like. The original first song of this album got pitched to the curb. This one seemed to fit and got slotted into its place, and I had no recording of it. I was working on various songs, mostly not from this album, and what I did was hire the guy in town who owned the music store and could play everything in his store to play drums to home computer recordings I made of simple acoustic guitar versions of various songs of mine. I'd show up once the store was closed for the evening, plug a USB drive of my sound files into George's computer, mostly just a rough track of me singing and playing acoustic to a click track, And then George would record himself through four mics he'd set up hanging over him hammering the living hell out of his drum kit in his acoustically treated room. Oh. 
was aggressive and thunderous like Chris, and sometimes a bit fancy like Tim, but staying more in the feeling of the songs, I felt. So this song doesn't have a bunch of tracks of different guys and girls doing different things for me. It's just George, who used to own the music store in Almont, playing drums, wandering ahead and behind the click track here and there and basically saying, deal with it. And me playing the rest into my computer. No sound effects or weird stuff, nothing fancy. Actually, it was a study in hiding a few things in it that you wouldn't necessarily hear. I made the drum beat slightly more tasty by slapping my legs and shaking an egg shaker. And I hit some harmony vocals so far down in the mix, you're unlikely to hear them unless you really try. Stuck inside a dusty mason jar. One sound, it could go anywhere at all. I wasn't trying to sing like anyone but myself, just telling the story with my voices following George's drums wherever they led not too many years ago. Be with 
it's on the boat But it doesn't feel like being naked But the heart wants to run free boundaries be sure of this they sure won't want to go how much is there to you anyway if you don't break out of where you are sure you'll never know You've got to change, but it's strange to say Some's got to be some more of the same More than yourself, but still yourself Paint more of the picture And feel a bigger frame a bigger